Luke 16, verses 1 through 13. Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. That's a lot of olive oil. The manager told him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 400. And then he asked the second, And how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat. He replied, that's a lot of wheat as well. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord Jesus Christ, we give you thanks for this word that you spoke to your disciples in the presence of those who loved money more than God. Help us to have our lives set aright, to have our relationships squared away so that we know what our priorities are, And help us to keep you at the forefront of our thinking in this time as we share together and as we reflect on this passage and on the tool that we've been exploring for the past couple of weeks as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is another sort of troubling passage. In addition to the Amos chapter 8 passage that Dan read for us, uh, a couple of passages that 
don't always sit well within us because they uh, highlight something that isn't very pleasant. In this case, in Luke 16, uh, a dishonest manager who is commended for cutting debts in half or 20, 40% off. That's, what's, what's going on here? Before we dig into that passage, let me say a word at the outset about the tool that we've been exploring for the past couple of weeks, the, the Enneagram that is in the journal that many of you have uh, in front of you, this journal right here. Um, I, have, I understand, I have heard from some of you that there is a, a bit of uh, discomfort or uncertainty about this particular tool. Um, so I want to set out a couple of reminders before we go any further with it. A couple of reminders for you that hopefully will will keep us on the right path. The Enneagram is just a personality theory. It is not the gospel. It is a personality tool, something to learn about ourselves, but it is not, it is not the good news of scripture. Um, it is a means to an end. It's not the end itself. It's a tool that we're using just for the purposes of spiritual formation. Learning about ourselves, growing deeper in our relationship with Christ, um, growing in our relationships with each other as part of the family of God. Uh, it helps us to think about our motivations, our blind spots, our personality tendencies, but it does not have anything to do with the question of salvation in Jesus. It's not a replacement for believing in the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's not about the good news of finding yourself or self-realization, anything like that. No, every Christian resource, every positive Christian resource about the Enneagram that I have explored affirms what we believe to be true, that salvation is through Christ alone. That is not negotiable. The work that the Enneagram is calling us to undertake is the work of learning about ourselves, the work of uh, learning about how we are wired, our personalities. This is all part of spiritual formation, which is another way of uh, a similar term to um, discipleship or Christian education. There have been a number of terms over the years that generally refer to the same kind of work, uh, the ongoing transformation and growth toward being like Christ. And that's something that every Christian is called to do from the moment we believe in Jesus to the moment we die, to grow in him. Now, the, the Enneagram may seem strange or foreign to you, and if so, that's all right. I understand. Keep in mind, though, that the strange or the foreign is not necessarily wrong as long as it points us to Jesus. As long as it leads us to a deeper understanding of Christ, our relationship with him, as long as it's in alignment with the gospel of Christ, we can use things like the Enneagram and other tools, learn about them and test them and use them in good conscience. 1,600 years ago, one of the early church leaders, St. Augustine, a bishop from North Africa, uh, wrote these words while he wrote them in a different language, but I'll read them in English so we can understand them. Uh, that's all that I have access to. He wrote this in a book called On Christian Doctrine. He said this, But whether the fact is 
as Varro has related, or is not so, still we ought not to give up music because of the superstition of the heathen if we can derive anything from it that is of use for the understanding of Holy Scripture. Nor does it follow that we must busy ourselves with their theatrical trumpery because we enter upon an investigation about harps and other instruments that may help us to lay hold upon spiritual things. For we ought not to refuse to learn letters, literature or other kinds of studies like that. We ought not to refuse to learn letters because they say that Mercury discovered them nor because they have dedicated temples to justice and virtue and prefer to worship in the form of stone things that ought to have their place in the heart, we should not on that account to forsake justice and virtue. No. But let every good and true Christian understand that wherever truth may be found, it belongs to our master. And while we recognize and acknowledge the truth, even in their religious literature, let us reject the figments of superstition. In other words, don't be afraid. Take the Enneagram for what it is, a personality theory, a tool for spiritual formation. If it's helpful to you, great. If it's not, that's okay too. But I will hold to two principles Number one, all truth is God's truth. If it's true, then God is over it. And number two, I will always point us to Jesus in our time together. That's why we start with scripture. That's why we read Jesus' words and reflect on them together. So, with all of that as preface, let's get back to Luke 16. If Jesus is to be the center of all things. This parable of this dishonest or shrewd manager comes hot on the heels of Luke 15, where Jesus has told three parables uh, in front of the Pharisees who are criticizing Jesus because he is hanging out with tax collectors and sinners, unsavory types, right? And he tells these three famous parables, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. And then the parable, we call it the parable of the prodigal son or the lost son. And a couple of weeks ago, I said we should call it the parable of the lost sons because both sons are lost in their own way. That's okay. Anyway, he tells these three lost parables and then immediately jumps into this parable of the dishonest or shrewd manager. There's something about relationships that Jesus is hitting on here. Especially with the parable of the lost sons. Remember the conflicted relationship between the brothers and their father. The one who went away and spent everything and came back and the party. And the other one who was faithful but didn't have the party. Right? Conflicted relationship there. And now this parable of the shrewd manager who does something with money to make relationships somehow better in his situation. Relationships are crucial to the kingdom of God. There's a a visual way of representing this that, that plays on the image of the cross that we see so often in Christian churches. There's a vertical relationship between us and God that is of crucial importance. Our
Salvation in Christ, yes. But then there's also that horizontal, right, the cross beam of the cross that helps us to remember that our relationships horizontally with other people are very much important in the kingdom of God as well. Vertical relationships and horizontal relationships. And Jesus is interested in both. Our horizontal relationships, relationships with other people in this world, are often based on power dynamics, such as socioeconomic status, wealth or employment or education, nationality or skin color or gender or popularity or appearance. We tend to make friends with people who are like us in one way or another. Maybe not always, but in some. And when we think about sharing hospitality, inviting people over to our homes or going out to eat with them or being hospitable in some way, shape, or form, hospitality is usually shown among people that are equals or given from someone who is higher somehow to someone who is lower as a gift of grace or an act of generosity. Rarely, I think, does someone who is lower somehow show hospitality to somebody who is higher in society, right? Um, Imagine a homeless person and a millionaire. Which person is going to be more likely to invite the other one over for dinner? You could imagine the millionaire being very gracious and generous. Oh, please come and join me for dinner, this poor person who has no home, right? But can you imagine it the other way around? Someone without a home, living in a tent or under a bridge or something, can, can... can that person actually invite a millionaire over for dinner? It doesn't seem possible. The hospitality doesn't really flow upstream that way. It would be embarrassing or humbling in some way for that to take place. It's that dynamic, that relational dynamic, that is at work in this parable in Luke 16. It relies on that structure of embarrassment or humility when somebody who is higher depends on the hospitality of somebody who is lower. In Jesus' time, the concept of patronage or indebtedness was very important in determining who was higher and lower um, in society. Giving money or resources to someone else was a common way to establish friendships. And it set up an unequal Uh, balance in that friendship between the giver and the recipient. Though they were friends, one of them was indebted to the other. So this set up a social boundary between the two, a higher class and a lower class. So in the parable that Jesus tells, this manager who is part of the higher class He's employed, he's working for a rich man, he's got all the stuff that he needs. He realizes he's going to lose his job. Not just his job, but his income, his standing, his social network, and all of this stuff. It's a big socioeconomic step downward that he's about to take. He willingly takes on embarrassment and humility so that he can survive. He crosses the social boundary between himself and the people who are indebted to his master. He lowers himself and asks for help. He uses his power and perhaps abuses his power, maybe, as manager of their loans 
to help the debtors so that they will, in return, help him. He is willing to humble himself to accept hospitality from people who are lower than him. He's changing the definition of friendship. It's not based on indebtedness through the exchange of money anymore, but now it's based on mutual support across social boundaries. The rich man, the master, who is in charge of all of this stuff, actually commends the, the manager for what he has done, cutting the debts in, in, uh, in half in one case or a lower percentage in another. He commends the manager for what he's done, and this is really surprising in the context of the story because we would expect the master to be upset. He's losing money on this deal, The manager has significantly reduced the amount of treasures and resources that are owed to his master. It's a a loss as a financial deal. But that is precisely the lesson that Jesus is trying to communicate. Money will not last forever. True riches, as Jesus describes them here in Luke and in the other Gospels, revolve around love of God and love of neighbor. Jesus has just told those three parables of the lost things in response to this criticism of of people hanging around Jesus that were not savory types. But that's where true riches were to be found for Jesus. In connecting with the tax collectors and the sinners and all of the others that would be overlooked by the religious establishment. Jesus says, you cannot serve both God and money. In other words, your participation in the kingdom of God, your new relationships with other people, based on sacrificial love and a willingness to cross these social boundaries with all humility, your participation is going to look like loss from a financial, worldly, material perspective. It's going to look like you're losing something if you're going to participate in God's kingdom this way. If you are, said differently, if you are more concerned about your money and your possessions and how they are used, more so than the mutual well-being, physical and spiritual, of you and your neighbors, then you are serving money and you are not serving God. Our relationships with each other matter. And Jesus encourages us to be humble to be respectful and loving and compassionate with ourselves and with our loved ones, with our neighbors, even with strangers, and even with our enemies. It's a reordering of our relationships in this world. Now, what in the world does this parable have to do with the Enneagram? (laughs) That thing that I went on about a few minutes ago. The Enneagram is a tool for self-discovery. It's a personality theory that can lend itself to our own spiritual formation, but it can also help us to think carefully about how to interact with other people based on their own personality traits. If we can think about how different people are wired, then we'll know better about how to relate with them and will know better about how to uh, share Christ's love with them in ways that they can receive. Now, in your journal on page three, there is 
a, a set of ground rules that we do need to remember. Uh, my number, there are nine types in the Enneagram, and the number is associated with each. And if you can find your number, so to speak, or the type that you are dominant in, it's not an excuse for behaving however you want to behave. Okay. The bottom ground rule is important too. I will work on me. I will not work on you. I'm not going to try to fix what I see in you. No, I'm going to work on me. It's a tool for your own formation. But as we think about other people, this middle rule becomes very central. I won't use your number against you. So as you think about other people in your life, if, uh, if, you, if you see certain types in this journal that, that remind you of somebody in your life, uh, you, the goal is not to use this information against them somehow, to put them down or to make them feel badly about themselves. That's, that's not the thing. Uh, what we're going to work toward is understanding how better to relate to other people. It's all about healthy relationships. Because treating anyone with less respect than what they deserve as an image of God, created in the image of God, Scripture says, treating anyone with less respect than what the image of God deserves is harmful to the message of Jesus. So today we're going to look at the final three types. Uh, The past two weeks we've looked at the feeling center, two, three, and four on the right-hand side of the circle. And last week we looked at the instinctive center, 8, 9, and 1 on the top. Today we're focusing on types 5, 6, and 7. Those are the types that operate out of the thinking center, uh, the head-oriented sorts of people. People who, um, who like to think about things more than they like to feel things emotionally, more than they like to just go off of bodily instincts. Okay? And we're going to look suggestions that are in the journal here about how you might interact healthfully with somebody in one of these types, how you might work toward a more healthy relationship with somebody who's dominant in type five or six or seven. So type five begins on page 25. Type five is the investigator, the sound counsel. Type 5 is the intense cerebral type. They're always living inside their brains. These people are perceptive, insightful, informed, and independent. The idea, the mental idea, I see some tapping going on. I, I recognize this, and yes, you're right. Uh, the, uh, the, the holy idea that motivates this kind of person, a type 5 individual, is... Uh, is being fully informed, knowing everything. This kind of person has to know all that there is, right? And uh, when that is not possible, when that becomes complicated, when you're not able to understand or think about everything, the mental fixation for somebody in this type is is stinginess. They kind of draw the resources in and, and don't communicate a whole bunch out. The virtue for a type 5 person is non-attachment. They don't get too deeply involved in stuff. They stay sort of, um, at least mentally, removed from complicated situations. They're able to see things from a high vantage point. Um, But the flip side of that virtue is greed. Um, Everything can be drawn in. Everything can belong to me, and nothing has to go out. It can become kind of a greedy uh, perspective to have. The core desire for a type 5 individual is competence, being good at stuff. 
But the core fear for a type 5 individual is obligation or helplessness or being incompetent somehow. If you are a type 5 individual, then the thing that you need to remember, one sentence to keep in mind, is that you don't have to understand everything. That can be a real challenge for somebody who's a type 5, right? Now, some famous examples. You'll be in good company if you're in type 5 here. Some really brainy types who live in their heads. Albert Einstein. Stephen Hawking. See, this is good, right? Good list so far. Uh, Vincent Van Gogh. Georgia O'Keeffe. Emily Dickinson. Agatha Christie. Stephen King. Bill Gates. Mark Zuckerberg. Alfred Hitchcock. Stanley Kubrick. Tim Burton. Filmmakers. Interesting, right? Jodie Foster. Um, Julian Assange, um, if you know the TV show House, House, the doctor from House, is he's got to know everything. can be a very kind of concealed and detached person. All right. Um, in, on page 25, in the top third of the page there, there's a section that we haven't drawn attention to in this time yet, and that's called the Enneagram and Relationships. So here's where you find some information for how you could better relate to somebody who is a type 5 person. Remember, on the right-hand side of that, of that section, if you know somebody who is a type 5, remember, try not to blindside them with new situations or ask them to make decisions without ample time to reflect. Type 5 people need time to process mentally and then, and then uh, come to a conclusion of their own. So keep that in mind. And a helpful thing to say to somebody who is a type 5 is, I appreciate how calm and thoughtful you are and your attention to details. That's what motivates a type 5 person. And when they're recognized for, for being that way, that, that's something that speaks life to their hearts. But don't say things like this, not this. You need to stop spending so much time on that. Find more friends and get involved in things. That's like fingernails on a chalkboard for somebody who's, who lives up here and doesn't want to be too attached to other things, other people, right? Uh, so those are just general guidelines for how to relate, uh, ways to speak uh, that, are, that are helpful to, uh, to somebody in this particular category. On the next page, type 6. Type 6 is the loyalist, the trusted integrator. Type 6 is the committed, security-oriented type. They are reliable and loyal, cautious, and sometimes indecisive. The idea that motivates the thought processes of a type 6 is strength or faith. But when that becomes difficult to, to maintain... Uh, hard to be strong, when it's hard to have faith, the mental fixation for a type 6 is cowardice. Uh, they become very much afraid of things. The virtue for a type 6 is courage, but the fear, or the vice for a type 6 is fear. Now, as I was thinking about that this morning, what came to my mind was the cowardly lion from the Wizard of Oz, right? He's always trying to be courageous, and he wants to be very reliable and loyal, but his, his, the flip side of his courage is fear. He's very much afraid, even though he wants to be, and eventually proves himself to be, courageous. Right? It's a good example of a type 6, I think. Um, the core desire for a type 6 is security. The core fear for a type 6 is uncertainty. When things are uncertain, that's when things get very much fearful. 
If you are a type 6, if you're dominant in type 6, this sentence is important to remember. The Lord is with you in the midst of chaos. Some famous examples of type 6 individuals include Mark Twain, Sigmund Freud, J. Edgar Hoover, Richard Nixon, George H.W. Bush, Princess Diana, J.R.R. Tolkien, Mike Tyson, Bruce Springsteen, Bono, Spike Lee, Marilyn Monroe, Diane Keaton, Mel Gibson, Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan, Julia Roberts, lots of actors in this, in this bunch. Paul Rudd, Ben Affleck. Uh, from Seinfeld, George Costanza. And from The Lord of the Rings, Frodo Baggins. Now, if you know a type 6 person, here are some things about relating to a type 6. Remember, help them to have confidence in their own abilities, especially their ability to make decisions. And for yourself, be trustworthy and do what you say you will do. Because if you don't, then the type 6 is going to feel like they're insecure. There's, there's not that stability of relationship and what they want is security in their relationships, right? If you're, re- if you're in a relationship with a type 6 kind of person, something that's helpful to say is that you are important to me and I'm not going anywhere. And I always appreciate hearing your thoughts. That adds to the security that is the sort of emotional base that uh, type 6 depends upon. Uh, But don't say things like this, you worry too much, it's driving me crazy. (laughs) Because that just keeps the wheels spinning in a type 6 person that says, oh, now I'm worried, I'm making this person worry, I'm going to worry about making them worry. It doesn't help anything, right? The words that we use to communicate to each other make a huge difference. And a lot of the time we think about the words that we say just from our perspective. I have to say this to you because it's within me. But we don't often stop to think about how it's going to be received by somebody else. And that's a major part of communication. The message isn't received until it's heard by the listener and interpreted in the way that was meant to be communicated. Communication is tricky. Okay, type 7. These are the fun ones. We saved the, maybe the most fun for last. Type 7 are the enthusiasts, the illuminators of possibility. Uh, the image here is shooting stars. These are, these are people that are idea-oriented people, uh, creative types. They are the busy, variety-seeking type. They are entertaining, accomplished, uninhibited, and playful. The, the idea that, that motivates them, the thought that motivates a type 7 is wisdom or work or having a plan. But a fixation for a type 7 is having too much of a plan, having too many things planned. The virtue that's listed here at the bottom of the page for a type 7 is sobriety. And that doesn't mean sobriety being sober from alcohol. It means uh, sobriety being level-headed, even-keeled, having a clear mind. But the vice for a type 7 is gluttony, having too much of an idea or too much of a plan or too much of of new stuff going on. The core desire for a type 7 is contentment, but the core fear for a type 7 is being incomplete or being trapped in pain or deprivation. If you are a type 7, it's important to remember this sentence, God's grace is sufficient. 
we can't do it on our own. God's grace is sufficient for all the experiences that you have. Some famous examples of type 7 people. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, Ben Franklin, Amelia Earhart, John F. Kennedy, Joe Biden, Sarah Palin, Chuck, Chuck Berry, um, Elton John, Miley Cyrus, Britney Spears, Katy Perry, a lot of musicians in this batch. Uh, Sasha Baron Cohen, Steven Spielberg, Fred Astaire, Cary Grant, Joan Rivers, Robin Williams, Jim Carrey, Bruce Willis, Robert Downey Jr., Cameron Diaz, Simon Cowell. If you are a type 7 kind of person, or if you, rather, if you know a type 7 kind of person in the relationship section, remember, give them freedom and resist the urge to tell them what to do. And at the same time, encourage them to remember that less is more. (laughs) These kinds of folks need to be encouraged toward a little bit of restraint. You can say something helpful to a type 7 person. You make life so interesting, fun, and adventurous. You have to say it with the right tone of voice rather than sarcasm, right? You make life so interesting, fun. Really, these people do make life interesting and fun and adventurous. But don't say this. I don't feel like I'm enough for you. Like, I'm not exciting or interesting. That's not even on their minds. They're excited just by being around people. A lot of extroverts, uh, like Robin Williams, right, are around these kinds of folks. It doesn't mean they don't have uh, deep needs internally, uh, but they they enjoy being with people, generally speaking, uh, most of the time. Okay, very good. Yeah, as, as you work on identifying your own type, perhaps you will notice that somebody else in your life is a clear example of one of these other types. So see if you can talk with that person this week about their personality, especially if they're uh, keyed in with this series about the Enneagram. And find a way to use those say this but not this language in your relationships with somebody else. We've just looked at that uh, information for these three types, but there, there's that same uh, suggest, set of suggestions for all of the nine types in the whole journal. So think of somebody in your life that exemplifies one of these types, read up on how to relate to them, and see if you can put that language into practice. Remember, as we learn from the parable of the manager in Luke 16, it is incredibly important to build relationships with people that are based on love and humility, and sacrifice, and mutual trust, and respect. That's the way of Jesus. That's the way of the kingdom of God. This Christianity thing isn't just about that vertical relationship between you and God. It's about the horizontal relationships that we have with each other, especially other Christians, but also our neighbors and even our enemies as well. Let's pray together. God, we give you thanks that you have created us in your own image and that you have given us each life, that you call us to abundance of life, an abundance that is, that is unique and different for each of us. We thank you for creating us in such varied and, and remarkably different ways. And as we've explored this particular tool, the Enneagram, as a way of thinking about how people are different from each other and yet all created in your image. We pray that you would help us to see you in each other's lives, 
that we would see your spirit at work in each other's lives and that we would rejoice in the ways that we exemplify your character and that we would spur each other on to grow to become more like you. We thank you for this time. We thank you for these strange and difficult words of scripture that we've thought about today. Help us always to be in awe of you and to be related to you and to each other in healthy ways. We thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen.